Thank you to Roxanne for bringing her colleague Jack Murray to play with us today. It's good to have the flute in the, with our choir today. A couple quick stories as we begin. I was a wide-eyed college junior. I had hardly been outside of Lawrence County, South Carolina in my life, and there I was in Jericho, the biblical Jericho. I was on a tour bus with 25 Furman students, including four of my best friends. You've heard about those guys. You know, I got engaged first and lost the bet, um, a bet that we made on this trip in Israel. And because I lost and had to marry Amy, you know, I, got, I get to pay them a dollar a year um, for 50 years. We were there together in Jericho. And we were looking at the sycamore tree, I mean the very exact same sycamore tree that little Zacchaeus climbed up in that day. He wanted to see Jesus. Imagine that. It was amazing. And on the street, right there in front of that tree, was a little woman with a little stand, and she was selling homemade bread. She had a little griddle behind her. Smoke was coming up from the fire underneath it. And she'd take a little round pad off the griddle and plop it on her stand. And for just a few shekels, the last one she removed and put right there was mine. I had never seen bread like this. It was something odd and exotic. Maybe this was the same bread Jesus had had in Jericho. In fact, from looking at this little old woman and her little old griddle, maybe she had actually served Jesus and Zacchaeus that day when Zacchaeus climbed down from that sycamore tree. That bread, that odd, exotic bread that I had never seen before, they called it pita bread. I told you I'd hardly been out of Lawrence County, South Carolina. It was amazing. Occasionally, 40 years later, if the air is just right in some odd setting, I can still smell that bread. I can still taste it. But it was just bread. So I didn't grow up eating pita bread, but I did eat a lot of cornbread in Clinton, South Carolina. My mother made cornbread similar to this skillet bread that Sharon prepared this morning, and it was so good, especially dunked into a glass of milk or sopping up the pot liquor from the bottom of a bowl of turnip greens. I sound like a country boy, don't I? My father was also good in the kitchen, and his mother from Little Rock, South Carolina, had taught him to fry cornbread. He'd mix up a little batter in a small bowl and put some grease in a skillet on the stove, and he'd pour out batter like little silver dollar pancakes, and they would sizzle to a golden brown perfection. What I would give to have a batch of my daddy's fried cornbread right now. It would be like my whole childhood in one bite. But it was just bread. Al Wilson grew the best tomatoes I have ever seen. Now, I say this with all due respect to Johnny Doyle, who ran a close second, but Al's tomatoes were legendary. I wrote about them one time in the church newsletter. I called his garden a tomato cathedral. I have never seen anything like it. Al used construction wire, that kind of wire that they used to fortify concrete. He would hang those sheets of wire between the metal posts that ran down on either side of the row, uh, maybe five rows in his garden, 25 feet long each, and he would continue that wire up maybe seven feet high, and the wire from one side would join the wire from the other side, and he'd attach it together. There must have been a hundred plants of tomatoes in his garden, and when harvest time came, you could walk through this tomato cathedral, dense with tomato vines, and you could pull deep 
red, softball-sized tomatoes from your ankles all the way up above your head, buckets full every day. There's absolutely nothing better on a 95-degree July afternoon than a homegrown tomato sandwich, fresh peeled and sliced tomatoes, a sprinkle of salt, a generous knife of Duke's mayonnaise, none of that Hellman's uh, pretender spread, please, and two slices of fresh white bread. Keep the grains and the seed, the flax, and the fancy stuff for another day. There's nothing better for a homegrown tomato sandwich than plain white bread. But it's just bread. One more. Amy makes a French toast casserole that will make you want to slap your mama, as, <laughs> as we used to say in Clinton, South Carolina. Amy uses good, fresh French bread. It has to be the real thing, and she smothers it in her French toast recipe. Now, I have no idea what's in that recipe, that batter, but since it comes out of Amy's kitchen, my guess is that it has enough butter and heavy whipping cream to explain why you can just hear your blood vessels slamming shut when you eat. She takes the cubes of that sopped French bread and she puts them in a 9 by 13 casserole dish and she covers that gooey bread with pats of butter and globs of cream cheese. And while that sin is browning in the oven, she slices up some ripe bananas and drowns them in a frying pan filled with butter and brown sugar, cinnamon and a little rum, or in honor of John Paris, a little more rum. And then she serves that French toast and pours the bananas on top, and you just try not to pass out before you finish eating. This dish has become a tradition for my summer preacher camp gathering. She made it the first few years we were together and then announced that she would not be able to come the next year, and an uproar rose across our Saturday Night Sermon Writing Club Facebook group. You have to come, Amy. You have to be there. Or if not, at least send the French toast casserole. It went on and on until finally one of the pastors said with a deeply intended pastoral irony, and you'll pardon my pastoral language here, we need the damn French toast casserole. <laughs> and it's been Amy's DFTC ever since. Amy, please send the DFTC to Preacher Camp. It's so good, but it's just bread. When Jesus taught his disciples to pray, give us this day our daily bread, he wasn't being mostly spiritual. His disciples, most of his first followers, the majority of the crowds that followed Jesus were peasants. They knew the value of daily bread. It was often the difference in having something to eat and having nothing at all. Congregations like ours may have lost some of the essential meaning of communion because communion bread symbolizes something theological for us. In other places, so many places around the world and for so many people, bread is hardly a symbol of anything at all. It's just subsistence, basic sustenance, nothing more. You know, if you don't know where your next meal is coming from, it's hard to theologize about bread. Jesus understood poverty, and having been raised in a peasant family in a small struggling town, always under the thumb of an oppressive foreign empire, maybe it was because Jesus understood the value of a simple meal that so much of his ministry took place around a table. 
if you could sit together around the table, if you could eat and drink, if there was enough to go around, you could celebrate. I have no doubt that when Jesus was sitting with his friends, he remembered the words of the psalmist. I have no doubt that on more than one occasion he quoted the psalmist, taste and see that the Lord is good. That table fellowship was at the center of his ministry. Wherever Jesus went, you would find him at a table. We may miss some of the significance of that ministry because we always emphasize the openness of his table. And what a remarkable example that was, one that is sorely needed in our world today. With our angry divisiveness, the increasing alienation of transgender students and xenophobic fear of immigrants, we need Jesus' example of a table open to all. From the list we're given in the Bible, the publicans and the sinners, the prostitutes, the tax collectors, the lepers, apparently every single identified category of outsider had been welcomed to Jesus' table. We need that example of wide welcome. But because we so emphasize his radical welcome, we may miss the equally radical nature of the simple meal itself. To break bread is to practice the kingdom, the kingdom of God with us. It is literally to make God's eternal vision tangible in our midst. To use a 50 cents seminary word, it is to practice eschatological hope. The prophet Isaiah envisioned such a hope centuries before Christ, and Christians have seen in his vision the eschatological future, a heavenly banquet. On this mountain, said Isaiah, the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a feast of rich food filled with marrow, of well-matured wine strained clear, and God will destroy on this mountain the shroud that is cast over all peoples. God will swallow up death forever. No death, just an eternal feast. So when we eat together, whether a feast or simple bread and wine, there is something truly divine happening. In the breaking of bread, God is with us. So this may be one of the very best stories in all the Bible. As I did last week, I'll invite you not to read along, but just listen to the story as if you'd never heard it before. Now on that same day, two of them were walking to a village called Emmaus, about seven miles away from Jerusalem, and they were talking with each other about all these things that had happened. And while they were talking and discussing, Jesus himself came near and went with them, but their eyes were kept from recognizing him. And he said to them, what are you discussing with each other while you are walking along? They stood still, looking sad. And then one of them, whose name was Cleopas, answered him, Are you the only stranger in Jerusalem who does not know about the things that have taken place here in these days? He asked them, What things? And they replied, The things about Jesus of Nazareth, who was a mighty prophet indeed, and word before God and all the people. And how our chief priests and leaders handed him over to be condemned to death and crucified him. But we had hoped that he was to be the one to redeem Israel. 
Yes, and besides all this, it is now the third day since these things took place. Moreover, some women in our group astounded us. They were at the tomb early this morning, and when they did not find his body there, they came back and told us that they had indeed seen a vision of angels who said that he was alive. And some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but they did not see him. And then Jesus said to them, Oh, how foolish you are, and how slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have declared. Was it not necessary that the Messiah should suffer these things and then enter, and then enter into his glory? Then, beginning with Moses and all the prophets, Jesus interpreted to them the things about himself in all the scriptures. And as they came near the village to which they were going, he walked ahead of them as if he was going, going on his way. But they urged him strongly, saying, Stay with us, because it is almost evening and the day is nearly over. And so he went in to stay with them. And when he was at the table with them, he took bread, blessed and broke it and gave it to them. Then their eyes were opened and they recognized him, and he vanished from their sight. They said to one another, Were not our hearts burning within us while he was talking to us on the road, while he was opening the scriptures to us? That same hour they got up and returned to Jerusalem, and they found the eleven and their companions gathered together. And they were saying, The Lord has risen indeed, and he has appeared to Simon. And then these two told what had happened to them on the road and how Jesus had been made known to them in the breaking of the bread. You have heard the ancient story. Of this beautiful story, the insightful Christian commentator Frederick Beekner says, Jesus is apt to come into the very midst of life at its most real. Not in a blaze of unearthly light, in the midst of a sermon, the throes of some religious daydream, but at supper time or walking down a road. He never approached from on high, but always in the midst of people, in the midst of real life. When Amy and I went to Southern Seminary in Louisville, Kentucky, When Amy and I went to seminary in Louisville, since we had spent most of our life in the church, we thought we knew pretty much all there was to know about Christianity. I'm joking, you know. But we had no idea about the Jesus we would meet on our journey. It was as if we had spent our entire lives walking along, listening to the Bible, and not understanding a word of it. Southern Seminary changed us. But it wasn't the classes, the professors, the three-year education, as wonderful as all of that was. No, it wasn't the school itself that changed us. We had two sets of neighbors. Uh, those neighbors are no longer together, folks. That's, that's my emotion. We had two sets of neighbors, dear, dear friends. We all lived together in a rundown slum affectionately called Seminary Village. James and Amy lived in the apartment above us. 
her brother David and his wife Beth lived in the apartment next to us. For two solid years, we shared pretty much everything together. We affectionately called ourselves the commune. We shared everything together, mostly a lot of food. Our apartment was between theirs, and we tended to keep our kitchen table clear, so the six of us spent a lot of time around our table. We broke bread together, a lot of bread. We shared our lives. I'll get there eventually. We grew together in our faith. We struggled and celebrated exploring the questions and questioning the answers. And as we shared all those meals together, Jesus changed right before our eyes. I mean that. As we look back on six very religious lives, we wondered why we had never recognized him like this before. How could we have missed him? This Jesus who valued relationships, not rules. This Jesus who welcomed all the outsiders and challenged all the insiders. This Jesus who preferred the poor and pitied the privileged. This Jesus whose vision of a kingdom of God would not settle for anything that looked like status quo. This Jesus who hated all the systems and loved God to death. I think it is not at all a pastoral exaggeration to say that Amy and I met Jesus along that road. And around that table, he changed. How could we have missed him for so long? The story ends this way. And they told what had happened along the road and how he had been made known to them in the breaking of the bread. But it wasn't just bread. It never is. May it be so. Amen.